Hi guys, this is Fatal Tales. My name's Katie. And I'm Azra. And this episode this week is going to be actually a two-parter. So um, it's going to be the story of the McDonald family. And typically this case is called the Jeffrey McDonald case or things like that. But we wanted to call it the family massacre instead because we want to divert as much attention from this fuck-ass asshole bastard as we can so this thought ass bitch ass <laughs> ho ass yeah he fucking sucks so we just would like <laughs> to put the the light on his family and the tragedy that it is that they're gone so right. and also we just want to say that there are a lot of people out there who think that jeffrey mcdonald is innocent and that he's a good person and that there are a lot of other confessions out there and there's a lot of evidence that was brought up in the trial that perhaps contradicted what the police's theory was and so in this episode we're going to focus primarily on the murders and jeffrey's account versus the police's account but in the next episode we're really going to delve deep into other suspects as well as jeffrey and what his possible motive was just to give you guys like a really in-depth understanding of this whole case because it is actually really fucking crazy right and ultimately nobody knows for sure what happened that night except for jeffrey and based on his personality i don't know that we'll ever know the whole truth no i, I don't think so period but yeah i would say even if he didn't kill his family the way he's acts about a lot of things makes him an asshole so he's an for asshole sure. regardless yeah and i also wanted to say sorry that this episode has come out a little bit later than originally planned i was a little bit sick at the beginning of this week so we weren't able to record on our normal days that we record and then edit that's why this episode is coming out on friday instead of wednesdays like usual but also happy new year because by the time you guys are listening to this it will be 2021 hopefully it's better than 2020 <laughs> go get fucking vaccinated please everybody get vaccinated let's fucking get rid of covid i feel like we're saying fuck a lot this episode but you know what let's fuck. keep it up <laughs> <laughs> i guess we should just get started so we're going to start by telling you guys a little bit of a backstory into the McDonald family and the heads of the family who were obviously Jeffrey McDonald and his wife Colette. So Colette's father died when she was pretty young and as a result she was pretty close to her mother and when she was around 13 her mother got remarried to a man named Freddie who would become Colette's stepfather and she grew pretty close to him as well. She saw him pretty much as a father. Now, Colette met Jeffrey in the seventh grade, and they started dating in the ninth grade. Throughout high school, their relationship was off and on, but Colette's parents loved him, and apparently everybody liked Jeffrey. He was outgoing, he was friendly, they were in different plays together. Everybody said that they were pretty much an all-American couple. After high school, Jeffrey went to Princeton, which was in New Jersey, and Colette went to Skidmore College, which was in New York. However, they made the decision to still stay together because at this point, they were very, very serious about each other. 
They got married when Colette was 20 years old because she had gotten pregnant with their first daughter, Kimberly. So it was a shotgun wedding. And her parents were pretty happy that they got married because they thought that Jeffrey had great potential. Shortly after they got married, they had both just finished their junior years of college. And Jeffrey made the decision to finish the last year of his senior year and then begin medical school simultaneously at a university in Chicago before he joined Colette back in New York for his residency. The couple went on to have one more daughter, Kristen, and after medical school, Jeffrey decided to join the army as a Green Beret and group surgeon. The couple was apart during this time as well because he was obviously traveling for the military and doing different things. So Colette would take care of their two daughters during this time and she was also taking night classes. Now, the couple was married for six years, and Jeffrey considers this period to be some of the happiest years of his life. Now, by the time that Kimberly and Kristen were five and two, respectively, Jeffrey and Colette were living on an army base in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, no longer in combat or in duty, and they were, you know, able to kind of have like a singular family unit, and he was there most of the time. Colette was 26 at this time, and she was four and a half months pregnant with their third child. So yeah, everything seems to be going really well for this family at this point. Six years married, dating since high school, two kids, another one on the way. They're pretty happy. They're making a lot of money because of Jeffrey's job and Colette's taking night classes, which seems to be what she wants to do. But unfortunately, one night in February 1970, everything would come crashing down. So at 3.40 in the morning on February 17th, police got a radio call for a disturbance at the McDonald home. Police went into the master bedroom and saw blood on the wall and ceiling and saw a man and woman lying on the floor. Now, this man and woman are, of course, Jeffrey and Colette. Jeffrey started to move slightly, and the first responder did mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, and he woke, immediately asking for them to check on his kids. Unfortunately, once the police went into their room, the girls were both already dead. Back in the master bedroom, the police saw that the woman had a blue PJ top lying across her chest, and a bloody imprint of the word pig was written on the headboard in this master bedroom. Colette had both arms broken, had been stabbed in the neck and the chest 16 times, which is so brutal. Their oldest daughter, Kimberly, had been stabbed and hit with a blunt object. She was only five years old. And their youngest daughter, Kristen, who was two, had been stabbed multiple times. Now, as for Jeffrey's injuries, obviously he made it out of this alive. He had scrapes on his abdomen and small puncture wounds, which were not life-threatening. According to his doctor, who was interviewed by police at the hospital, he was not in acute distress. And something really weird that Jeffrey did while he was at the hospital was invite his friends over to drink a bottle of champagne with him which why i feel like the strange thing to me about this is the particular drink of choice 
Now, if he were drinking, like, vodka or whiskey, I'd be like, okay, like, his whole family just died. He needs a drink, right? Right. But champagne is a celebratory drink? Exactly. Exactly. You don't drink champagne immediately after your family's just been brutally murdered. You drink it on New Year's Eve. You drink it on your wedding day. You don't drink it at this moment. It's definitely bizarre behavior, for sure. Yeah, but just to say, you know, we shouldn't judge people based on the reactions immediately after something like this has happened because none of us know how we would personally react, but it is something to point out that is really fucking weird. Definitely. So now we'll go ahead and go into Jeffrey's story of what happened that night. So he claims that on the evening of February 16th, after he got home from work, he took his two daughters to feed their pony that they had just gotten for Christmas. And then he took them home to have dinner with Colette. Colette had an evening class, so he put his daughters to bed while she was away. And then once she got home, they watched TV together before Colette went to bed. Now, Jeffrey stayed up to watch Johnny Carson, and he read a book, and then he said that at some point in the night, Kristen began crying, and he had to calm her down with some chocolate milk. Then, after this, he returned to his book, and at 2 a.m., he decided to wash some dishes. He was planning on going to bed, but then when he went into his room, he found that Kristen was in his spot, and she had wet the bed. He carried her back to her room, and decided to not bother with changing the sheets, because it was past 2 a.m., so he just decided to fall asleep on the living room couch. Jeffrey claims that later, he was awoken by his wife's screams. She was yelling, Jeff, why are they doing this to me? His daughter Kimberly was also calling out for him. When he opened his eyes, there were four people standing over him. Two white men, one black man, and a woman. The black man was in a fatigue jacket with E6 sergeant stripes on the sleeves. The woman had a floppy hat and stringy blonde hair. The woman was also holding a flickering light and was chanting, Acid is groovy, kill the pigs. When Jeffrey attempted to get up, one of the men hit his head with a club and then stabbed him in the chest with an ice pick. The intruders pulled his top over his head, and he used this to his advantage, trying to use the shirt to fend off the attacks. After a bit of a struggle, he was eventually thrown down the steps of the hallway and passed out. The steps that he was thrown down are the ones that lead from the living room to the bedrooms, and he was kind of in like a hallway there. He claims that then after this, he woke up to find his wife, Colette, on the floor of the master bedroom, and that she had a knife in her chest, and someone had written pig in blood on the headboard of the bed. He frantically pulled the knife out of her chest and attempted to give her mouth to mouth, but this was to no avail. He then went in search of his daughters. Each of them were in their respective rooms. They were also attacked and weren't alive. Jeffrey called 911 saying, we've been stabbed, people are dying. So I just want to kind of go over some parts of Jeffrey's account because I feel like we can just dissect a lot from it because there are a lot of things that kind of don't add up to me, that kind of don't make sense to me. Starting with the fact that he apparently was doing the dishes at 2 (laughs) a.m. I don't know. who does dishes at 2 a.m. when his whole family is sleeping like the floor below him right that's the thing like nobody does 
dishes at two in the morning. I have roommates. I don't even do dishes at two in the morning because I don't want to wake anybody up. Exactly. Exactly. It's just a really weird thing to add into his story so that he has something that he's doing at that time. Whether or not it's true, it's just fucking weird. (laughs) And then, of course, his description of these fucking hippies, like these drug-crazed hippies that he's describing. It's just so outlandish sounds so bizarre so made up to me this woman with the hat and blonde hair holding a candle saying acid is groovy kill the pigs you know it's just no (laughs) right and that's the thing i think with this story how do you blame it on like a group of at least four people or more that have all decided to just randomly walk in and murder a family and like it happened right Sharon Tate you know Charlie Manson it it happened but I would say that hippies killing people has got to be one of the most rare stories in the whole universe exactly exactly and also he's saying that there are four around him like above him at the same time his wife and daughters are being attacked so how many intruders are we expected to believe that there are in the house and that all of them would like be on board to just murder a family exactly just randomly it, it doesn't make sense to me and that he's the only one that makes it out alive with minor injuries right and the fact that this is a one-off right there's not another murder where somebody gets you know pig written on the headboard this is a one-off murder that never happens again you know it's not connected to charlie manson in any way it's after the mansons have already been arrested or the manson family i guess has already been arrested this just doesn't add up no it it definitely definitely doesn't it's very weird the police kind of agreed with us as well so they decided to go back to the house and take another look at the crime scene and they realized that it really didn't add up to a break-in now mcdonald had claimed that the attacker might have been someone that he turned in for illegal drug use while he was a doctor but police had a really hard time believing that because again it just didn't seem like there was a break-in at the home. There didn't seem to be much of a struggle. There was no evidence of an intruder. And they didn't take anything from the house. Now, it was the Army's Criminal Investigation Division, or CID, doing this. And they were the ones who did not believe him. Because Jeffrey was part of the Army, it was the military who was doing the investigation. The only things in the living room that were disturbed even a little were a tipped over potted plant and a coffee table in front of a couch that was laying on its side every single other thing was in its place the police noted that even like birthday cards that were up on a mantle were still upright and perfectly placed which just shouldn't happen Especially if there's been a struggle where, you know, Jeffrey's being attacked, he's fighting back. You walk past birthday cards too quickly and they tip over. So you're telling me that these like 
four, five plus intruders are breaking into this home and attacking people and these birthday cards are still upright on the mantle in perfect condition and nothing else is even slightly ajar. Right, that's the thing. There was tons of chaos, plenty of chaos in the bedrooms, but the living room where Jeffrey claims that he was sleeping on the couch everything is perfectly in place. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, the living room, the kitchen, the dining room, every other place in the home was perfectly intact. And there's no blood. No blood at all in the living room. Yeah, literally no blood. So how the fuck was he stabbed, excuse me? Right, this guy claims he was stabbed standing in his living room and that he passed out in the hallway. No blood? Right, exactly. So, obviously, the police are like, something's, something's going on. Now, another thing that really, really stood out was that three times after the murders, Jeffrey kept saying, be sure to tell the CID I took the knife out of my wife's chest. Now, after looking into this and doing tests, investigators realized that the knife had never even been in Colette's chest. The ice pick was used in her chest, but the knife in her neck. So the only thing I can think of is that Jeffrey was saying that he wanted to say, be sure to tell the CID I took the knife out of my wife's chest because he wanted there to be a reason for his blood and his fingerprints to be on the knife. Right, that's exactly why. I mean, otherwise, he looks super shady if he's got blood or his prints on the knife. Now, one of the difficulties of this case is that the crime scene wasn't secured properly. 26 people were allowed to walk through before it got closed off. An ambulance driver stole Jeffrey's wallet. (laughs) That's so crazy to me that an ambulance driver just like, like, whoop, I'm gonna take your fucking wallet. Right. I mean, Your wife and your kids have just been murdered, but I'm going to take your wallet. While there are cops everywhere. Literally. Literally. (laughs) Now, there's a blue fiber that was found underneath Kristen's fingernails that was lost. There was a piece of skin underneath Colette's nails that was lost, which is so unfortunate because if this were analyzed and turned out to be Jeffrey's, that's pretty damning. But... It was never tested, they don't know, because it got lost. And then someone was allowed to turn Colette's body over and move Jeffrey's top that was sitting on top of her chest. So, again, just, like, disturbing the crime scene. 40 sets of fingerprints were destroyed, and a bloody footprint was lost while they were trying to remove it. So, essentially, just everything about this crime scene gets fucked. They're not able to actually get all the evidence from it. And it just, it makes it hard to know all of the details of this case. Oh yeah, it really, really does. Also, I just wanted to say that I realized that we didn't completely make it super clear earlier, but that blue pajama top that was laying on top of Colette when police first arrived was confirmed to be Jeffrey's pajama top that he had laid over her for reasons unknown at this moment (laughs) right yeah he laid his pajama top over her but it wasn't clear why yeah 
Now, the CID obviously was suspicious of Jeffrey, and they questioned him. And during this interview, he reportedly showed little to no emotion, talking about his recently murdered family. Which, again, grief is weird. You know, we can't really hold this against him. Just something to mention. But because of this, he was put under armed guard, and an Article 32 hearing was convened three months later. So, an Article 32 hearing is a preliminary hearing that determines whether charges will be dismissed or proceed to a court-martial or administrative separations board. So, basically, they take place with a judge advocate, which is an impartial preliminary hearing officer. They take place very much like a typical trial, but they're not... They're basically deciding whether he's going to get court-martialed or not. It's not the same thing as, like, if he were to actually go to trial. They're kind of, like, deciding whether there's enough evidence to send him to trial. Right. So, in an Article 32 hearing, it's really important for him to get a great lawyer, which he ended up getting. (laughs) We're going to go over what the police and prosecution's theory was for what happened that night. According to them thinking that Jeffrey was the one who had murdered his family. One really big thing that helped the police a lot was the knowledge that each family member had a different blood type. For now, we're just going to say that Jeffrey had type B, but just know that every single other family member had a different type. So police thought that the evening had started out with Jeffrey and Colette having an argument in the master bedroom. He picked up a wooden club and started hitting her with it, knocking her out. Kimberly, their older daughter, had heard the commotion and came into the master bedroom, and he swung around and hit her with it. Kimberly got knocked out, and he carried her back to her room. Now, this checks out with their theory because they found Kimberly's blood type in the entrance of the master bedroom. The police think that he kind of panics a little bit because Colette's knocked out. Kimberly's knocked out, probably dead because of this fucking wooden club that he's hit her with. And she's only five. So he kind of tries to think about what he's going to do. He's you know, beat his wife with this club, potentially killed his five-year-old daughter with this club. So he thinks that he has to get rid of Kristen as well. So he decides to go and stab Kristen, who was only two. And fuck, this is probably the worst part of this case for me, honestly. But Kristen defended herself. And we know that she defended herself because she had stab wounds on her hands. And in one of her wounds to her hands, her finger was cut to the bone. Her finger was cut to the bone and she was a two-year-old baby. She had a total of 33 stab wounds. She was stabbed by knife 12 times in the back four times in the chest, and once in the neck. And with the ice pick, she was stabbed 15 more times in the chest. Now, police did find Colette's type A blood in Kristen's room, and they believe that she woke up and ran into Kristen's room to try and protect her from her husband, 
who was clearly enraged, and Jeffrey hit her again with the same wooden club, and this is the final blow that killed her, and she bled onto Kristen's bed, leaving her blood type in the room. He then wrapped Colette's body in a sheet and carried her back into the master bedroom. This sheet was also later found in the crime scene. He also left a bloody footprint with Colette's blood in Kristen's room. Now, this is the bloody footprint that we mentioned earlier that was unfortunately lost because the crime scene was so poorly secured. And unfortunately, we know that it was Colette's blood type, but we don't know if it was for sure Jeffrey's footprint. If it was Jeffrey's footprint, they could have used it later but unfortunately was lost. Now, after killing Kristen, he then went and wrote pig on the headboard. Now, he'd made a really fucking dumb mistake at this moment because under this headboard, they found little tips and fibers of surgical gloves that they believe were used to write the word pig on the headboard. Jeffrey's blood type, type B blood, was found in the kitchen, and when they looked under the kitchen sink right where Jeffrey's blood type was found, they found surgical gloves, and these surgical gloves matched the exact same surgical gloves under the headboard in the master bedroom. These were the ones that were used to write pig. As well as this, in the bathroom, they found Jeffrey's blood type in the bathroom sink. This is where the majority of Jeffrey's blood was found, and so they believe that this is how he inflicted the wounds on himself. His self-inflicted wounds were basically a stab between ribs 7 and 8, which is an area where he knew he wouldn't feel that much pain, because obviously he's a doctor. Police believe that he either flushed the gloves down the toilet or threw them in the garbage. Because the crime scene wasn't secured very well, the CID didn't control whether the garbage was thrown away before they looked through it, which is really fucking stupid. So yeah, he either threw them in the garbage or flushed them down the toilet. My guess is he probably threw them in the toilet. I think he's stupid, but I don't think he's stupid enough to leave the gloves that he used in the house. Mm Mm-hmm. I agree. I completely agree. And then one last thing that they also found was Jeffrey's glasses in the living room with a small amount of Kristen's blood type on them. This looks bad for Jeffrey because he said that he wasn't wearing them when he went into her room to see if she was okay and alive. So how the fuck did her blood get on them? Right. Basically everything about this, he kind of, it's kind of messed up. Like things just don't quite match up. Exactly. Now, one interesting thing to note is that in the living room, under the coffee table, there were some magazines, and in one magazine, Esquire, Kimberly's blood was found in the pages of it. The magazine had information on the Manson family, and police think this may be where he got the inspiration for, like, the hippie narrative and writing pig on the headboard and everything like that. There were 18 similarities between the Manson murders and what happened at the McDonald home. And the magazine itself had an image of a blonde hippie woman carrying a candle. So it is important to note that this Esquire magazine was possibly contaminated. CID investigators had flipped through it for days before they even noticed that there was blood on it. 
which is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> like, what were these investigators doing flipping through a magazine? I feel like the thing that travels, the thread that travels through this whole case is like, wow, the police kind of fucked this up. But, um... Yeah. Everything points back to Jeffrey, but away from Jeffrey because the police bungled it, you know? Yeah. It's yeah, just I hard to... agree. It's just hard to, like, nail him on things. Now... Clifford Soames was the lead prosecutor in this Article 32 hearing, and he said that the coffee table in the living room was turned over and it was on its side. Now, every time that officers had tried to recreate this, the coffee table fell on its top and not on its side. So it would like flip over and it wouldn't ever lay on its side. It would always flip over all the way. So they think that it had to have been placed on its side. Now, the prosecution focused really strongly on the forensic evidence at the scene and the location of the blood in each room to show, like, proof of where Jeffrey had gone and when he had gone there. Now, they went through each of the steps that they believe that Jeffrey had gone through the night of the crimes and basically just kind of built out this timeline. Which I think is, like, a really smart move for prosecution because, you know, they have the signs to back them up. Well, they- especially... The rare thing in this case is every single person in this family had a different blood type. So it was possible, even in 1970, to say, this is Jeffrey's blood, this is Kristen's blood, this is Kimberly's, this is Colette's, which at this time is unheard of. Exactly, exactly. It's so rare and it's so fucking lucky, really, for police and for the prosecution that they had this kind of luck on their side. Definitely. So, as for the defense, Bernie Siegel was Jeffrey's defense attorney, and he was honestly great for Jeffrey in this Article 32 hearing, because the first thing he did was start proving that the crime scene was not properly secured, which it really fucking wasn't. So, he started pulling out photographs from the crime scene at different times during the investigation and pointing out the differences in them and so one of them was a phone at the crime scene and one of the pictures early on the phone was hanging off the hook and then in a later one it was placed back on the hook in another one a blanket was on the couch and then later on that same blanket was at the bottom of the fucking stairs like laying on the ground which makes no sense to me. And then that flower pot that we were talking about, which was one of the only things that was really messed up in the living room, in one of the first pictures, that flower pot was laying on its side, and then in a later photo, it was in an upright position. So one of the investigators, or someone at the crime scene, had decided that it would just be really cool and really fine to just pick it up, just touch the evidence, and pick it up before it gets photographed again. Obviously, this is really bad for the CID because it shows how much they fucked things up. Another thing that Bernie Siegel, the defense attorney, did really great was he really took apart the prosecution's argument about the coffee table because he noticed that there was a rocking chair in front of the coffee table and he realized that the table must have hit the rocking chair while falling and then landed on its side and that's why in the crime scene it wasn't on its top it was on its side and when they tested out this theory that's exactly what happened so it disproved the prosecution's entire argument with the coffee table Now, the defense also argued that Jeffrey was liked a lot and 
constantly playing with his daughters, which lots of murderers are liked a lot, so I don't know how much credence to give to this. <laughs> but something that really looked great for Jeffrey was that Colette's stepfather even said great things about him during the hearing. He said that if he had another daughter, he'd want the same son-in-law, which is, you know, really shows how much he believed Jeffrey. Right, everybody thought that he was innocent, everybody liked him, everybody wanted him to win. It's not until after a lot of this happens that anybody really changes their mind on that. One man came forward and said that he had a neighbor who was weird and that fit the description of the woman wearing the floppy hat and blonde wig and boots. Now, he said that she came home the night of the murders around 4 a.m. So this could point to the fact that Jeffrey's telling the truth if she did come home at like 4 a.m. And then he said that she also was with two or three other men and those men fit the descriptions of the men that Jeffrey described. So a black man and two white men. A few weeks later, the woman told her neighbor that she was planning on leaving town because of harassment from the police about her potential involvement in the murders. So basically, this could be the lady that was in the house, if Jeffrey's telling the truth. And she told her neighbor that she was on LSD the night that the murders occurred and she couldn't remember what she had been doing. Now, this woman's name was Helena Stokely. Now, remember this name because she will come up again. The defense decided to bring this guy to the stand to testify about what Helena had told him and basically to give credence to Jeffrey's story. Right, and this is a big deal because he's saying that he saw someone who had fit the exact description the night of the murders coming home really late at night, so this really, really helps Jeffrey's case. Now, as for Helena Stokely, earlier in the investigation, Helena had been investigated by the CID because of this neighbor's testimony, but there hadn't really been information that would tie her to the case other than this account. In the interview, she said that she no longer had the floppy hat or the wig, and she said that she was sure that she had never been inside the McDonald house. They really couldn't tie her to the case in any way other than this neighbor's description. She had no links to the McDonald family in any sort of way, and a CID investigator even said that lots of women have floppy hats and wigs, so they can't really go around investigating every woman who has a blonde wig and a floppy hat. It just wouldn't work. Now, there was another person who claimed to see a woman fitting the description of a woman with a floppy hat that night, and his name was Ken Micah. And so, defense brought this man, Ken, to the stand. But interestingly, Ken insists that the woman he had seen that night was not Helena Stokely. So, we have two different sightings of a woman with a floppy hat. One is Helena Stokely. One is absolutely not Helena Stokely. So, again, this fits with what the CID investigators said, that lots of women have floppy hats and blonde wigs. <laughs> Right, that's the thing. You can't really tie her to the case just because of what she looked like. Now, right. in addition, Jeffrey's memory from that night probably isn't super clear anyway. He didn't give, like, a very detailed description. 
Despite the CID's earlier investigation that had determined that Helena was not involved in the murder, the colonel that was presiding over the hearing decided that the information presented by the neighbor and by Ken were damning and that the charges against Jeffrey were not true, and he felt that Helena should be investigated instead of Jeffrey. So, essentially, Jeffrey gets off on his first trial with the military police. They drop the charges, the Article 32 trial's over, and basically they just say there's not enough evidence for us to court-martial him. But it's important to make the distinction. This is not saying he's not guilty. This is not the same as if he went to a regular trial and the judge acquitted him or like he was charged not guilty by a jury. This is just saying there's not enough evidence here for us to officially say he's the one that did it. Right. And also the colonel who was presiding really, really did think that the CID investigators hadn't done their due diligence by investigating Helena Stokely more and more in depth. Right. It basically is a sen- like a sense of, you guys haven't finished investigating this case, you just want me to put him in jail. I'm not going to exactly. do that. So after his hearing, Jeffrey really believed that he was free, that his life was going to go back to normal. You know, the hearing was over, He was untouchable, essentially. So afterwards, he began to work at an emergency room in California. He started working at the St. Mary Medical Center in Long Beach. And he also bought himself a yacht and a beachfront condo. So really, he's just living the fucking life, you know. He seems to have moved on just fine. In fact, we learned later that he was living his dream bachelor life even during the initial Article 32 hearing as his secretary at the time told investigators that they were regularly having sex at the time of the hearing. She said that they were basically fucking as much as they possibly could, like whenever he was free during the hearing. This was, remember, pretty much right after his family had been murdered. Like, his family gets murdered, the investigation happens pretty quickly, and then the Article 32 hearing happens, and he's fucking his secretary. It's just... It's so fucking gross to me. Well, it's just like... I don't know, everybody grieves differently, but... Dude, can you fucking wait? Like, your wife just died. Right. He just is so ridiculous and so gross and you know he doesn't get any better because in a tv interview he kept acting gross and fucking ridiculous because in this tv interview he did not seem sad basically said he was fucked over by the army investigation was very poor me about it did not say anything about how sad he was about his family being murdered, did not say anything about, you know, how he wanted justice for his wife and his kids, you know, his unborn baby that his wife was four and a half months pregnant with. No, 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 no. It was really just that he was fucked over by the army investigation and that it wasn't fair that he was being investigated. That's all. Right, and he didn't even, like, he wasn't trying to, like, get, like garner attention for finding the killers or, like, there were other people there that night it was more just like i'm not guilty it's not me the police shouldn't have even investigated me to begin with 
right. And the one time that he did actually even acknowledge his family, he referred to them as three people. He couldn't even say my family or my wife and daughters, my wife and kids. He said three people. How fucking heartless is that? How heartless. Yeah, he he fucking sucks. I I hate him. I hate him so much. Like I have so much <laughs> I have so much rage inside me because of this man. I cannot handle it. Yeah, he's really fucking gross. Now, after this point, after the article 32 hearing, the police begin to reinvestigate the case, largely because of Colette's stepfather, Freddie. So, you may re- remember prior to this, during the article 32 hearing, Freddie had said, "If I had two daughters, I would still want the same son-in-law." Basically just like he loved Jeffrey, really liked him in the family. But after that hearing, Freddie was pouring back through the evidence. He was trying to figure out what had happened to his, you know, daughter and grandkids. And he basically completely 180 And now he had come to believe that Jeffrey had murdered his stepdaughter and grandchildren. So... Two months after the reinvestigation started, Helena had to go to the hospital for rehab as she was taking heroin, like, eight or nine times a day. She, like, went into rehab in the hospital, and her prognosis from the doctors when she left was that she basically was not doing well. She admitted to being involved in the murders after being arrested for possession of drugs, and she gave details about the case. Now, when given a polygraph, she kept going back and forth on her answers. So she would one time say, yes, I was there. One time say, no, I wasn't there. According to the polygraph tech, when she says that she wasn't there, it said she was lying. But then everything about the whole polygraph was kind of back and forth and back and forth. And she was saying things back and forth and back and forth. The polygraph tester said that she probably literally just had no idea. She wasn't lying, but she also was definitely not telling the truth. I think the thing about Helena is that this is clearly a woman who's not well and not well enough to be in a police interview and not well enough to be taking a polygraph test. And it seems pretty clear that she doesn't really know for sure. Exactly. But police kind of keep talking with her and talking with her and talking with her and getting back and forth answers. And I feel like they feel like they have to at this point because of what the colonel said, that she needed to be investigated more because the Article 32 hearing didn't go forward. Yes, they want to investigate Jeffrey more, but they also need to investigate Helena and every other suspect that they might have because they need to make sure that, like, they can really pin this on Jeffrey if they really strongly believe that it is him. Right, that's the thing, is they can't just say, oh, well, it's gotta be him. They have to have evidence. They have to have proof. And And they have to, like, cross out every other lead. Right, and look for every other possibility. And just because the story that he told doesn't necessarily make sense doesn't mean it's not true, right? Like I said, the Manson family did, you know, have a hippie murder spree. That did happen, so how... Like, you can't rule it out as completely impossible. It just seems unlikely and seems very coincidental when Jeffrey happened to have a copy of a magazine that detailed everything that happened in the Manson family murders sitting on his fucking coffee table. It just, it's 
coincidental, but you can't 100% say this is for sure what happened. This is for sure what didn't happen, you know? And the hard thing with a polygraph is it doesn't rule anything out, you know? Back then, they felt like this would prove, you know, either she was there or she wasn't there, but that's not really how polygraph tests work. If anything, a polygraph test is kind of useful to put pressure on somebody and make them think that you know more than you know, but it's not admissible in court and it's not foolproof. Exactly, yeah. They can't really use it past the interview process. So, as investigators kept looking into Helena, they unfortunately found out that that neighbor that was so critical to the Article 32 hearing, who had claimed to have seen her step out of her car with the men who fit the descriptions late the night of the murder, had lied. He took a polygraph test and failed it. And then he admitted that the part about her telling him that she needed to leave town was true, but he never saw her that night. And then he said that he had only dreamed it two months later. So basically, he just fucking made it all up. He made it all up, and so now the entire reason that the Article 32 hearing didn't go through was because of a lie. Because let's be real, if it wasn't because of this fucking neighbor, it probably would have gone through, and he probably would have been court-martialed. Like, if it wasn't for this neighbor's claim. Right, and then at that point, everything's over. Jeffrey's name isn't cleared at all. But then again, at the same time his whole family and everybody believed him at that point. So I think maybe it just needed more time and it needed to sit for a while. The hard thing about murder cases is sometimes the biggest thing that police can do is just keep looking for evidence, keep pouring back over things, keep talking to people. And it's really frustrating because we're like, well, he's out there, he did it. Or she's out there, she did it, right? Because Helena admitted to it. So it's just kind of... Well, she admitted to it, and then she said she didn't do it, and then she said she did do it, and then she said she didn't do it. And you guys will find out in the next episode that this is going to be a theme, so just remember the name Helena. Right. (laughs) But that's kind of where we're going to leave off with you guys. So Jeffrey got off. He got away with it for now because the Article 32 hearing didn't didn't go through. He is living his dream bachelor life, fucking his secretary, living in a beachfront condo, being a fucking dick, not being sad about his family. His in-laws are turning on him because they realize that he probably did it. And the one reason that the Article 32 hearing didn't go through and he didn't get court-martialed is because of a lie, because somebody made up a false account that they saw somebody who fit the description of a murderer when they really didn't. So it's really frustrating, and we'll see you guys next time. Yeah, definitely. Um, If you're interested in seeing pictures of this family, make sure you follow us on Instagram. We'll have the link to our social medias and all the sources for this case in our show notes so make sure you go click on those and if you feel like it please leave us a five-star review those really help us a lot follow us on instagram at fatal tales on twitter at fatal tales pod send us any case suggestions at fataltales at gmail.com and remember guys be gay and don't do crimes or at least don't get caught 
and just have a great new year. Yeah, happy new year, guys. Have a good one.